Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm glad to be joined by my co-host in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, who is the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, uh, welcome and Happy New Year. It's good to be with you again. Well, Happy New Year. I am, uh, you see me recovering from uh, having spent a day at a a water park near Mesonutton Mountain in Virginia with half a dozen of my grandchildren. And I went down actually both of the really long slides. And so I now know what the meaning of fear is. Interesting, because we were at the Great Wolf Lodge in Williamsburg, and I was also going down very tall water slides. Somehow people in our party thought it would be great sport to have the cardiac patient in the group go down these (laughs) death-defying slides. But nobody ended up, though, worse for it. So we're all fine. Let me introduce our guest today. It's Professor John Maurer, who is the Professor of Strategy and Security Studies at Air University's School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. He's got a PhD from Georgetown. He's written extensively on arms control and nuclear weapons and national security. Also been published in the Texas National Security Review, War on the Rocks, National Interest, Real Clear Defense, and other journals, uh, including referee journals like Diplomatic History. But the subject of today's conversation will be his recent book, Competitive Arms Control, Nixon, Kissinger, and Salt, 1969 to 1972, a study of the ABM and SALT treaty negotiations uh, and how we got to them. Welcome, John. Eric, Elliot, thanks so much for having me. Well, John, why don't you lay out for our listeners the distinction you make in your book between the sort of competitive and cooperative approaches to arms control and how those played out in the Nixon administration uh, in the kind of interagency fights that since that time have become all too familiar to people who follow this kind of blood sport in Washington. So when I started this project, I had a sense of what I thought I was going to find in a history of early American arms control policy, especially in the Nixon administration. And it was this sense of arms control as a cooperative exercise between countries, even countries that have geopolitical rivalry, that are enemies in some senses, can still come together and they can identify particular weapons or technologies that are bad for both of them. And they can cooperate in a very sort of narrow and tailored way to limit weapons that are mutually disadvantageous to them, even as they compete in other fields. That was my mindset on arms control when I came into this process. And as I wrote the book, as I went to the Nixon Library especially and was going through the archives there, what emerged was a very different story about the motives of arms control in the Nixon administration. Although there were the U.S. government had some people who promoted this cooperative idea of let's identify the particularly destabilizing technologies and put limits on those at the highest levels of the government, in the White House, uh, Nixon, Kissinger, and at the Department of Defense, uh, especially Melvin Laird and his team there, the purpose of the arms control negotiation, the objective that they were pursuing, 
was not mutual gain with the Soviet Union. Rather, it was seeking to use the negotiations to alter the structure of competition going forward. Competition, arms competition, would continue between the superpowers going forward. But if the negotiations were structured appropriately, Nixon and Kissinger thought, the competition would continue on lines favorable to the United States rather than the Soviet Union. So they were seeking to use the negotiations for competitive advantage. Hence, in the title of the book, I call this competitive arms control. Uh, and the specific things that they, and especially uh, Melvin Laird, were looking at in this period were an attempt to shift competition with the Soviet Union from a quantitative competition in the number of weapons to a qualitative competition in the quality of weapons, their accuracy, their reliability, the, the ability of sensors to locate targets rapidly and sort of cue them for attack by, by missile and bomber forces. Uh, things that we later associate with what becomes known as the offset strategy in the late 1970s. But even in the early 70s, this was, I discovered, a substantial portion, indeed perhaps the main goal in the Nixon administration of these arms control negotiations was to enable a competitive strategy and shift military technical competition towards a qualitative realm uh, in which they thought the United States would have significant advantages. You know, I basically have always thought uh, of arms control uh, as a snare and a delusion, unless you're finding some way to, to use it to, you know, cleverly beat down the other guy. And, and I can well believe that that's how Nixon thought about it. And Melvin Laird, who I very much hope we'll talk about, because I think he's an underappreciated figure in that phase of the Cold War. Can I focus in on Kissinger for a moment, too? Because what you're saying seems to me to be at odds with what I understand of the Kissingerian worldview circa 1970 or thereabouts. And uh, if, you'll, if you'll bear with me, let me just give you what I think that worldview is. First, you know, in general, he is, you know, as I think you can tell from his writings when he was still an academic, but even down to the present day when in his writings about Ukraine, he is focused on stability, on equilibrium, you know, on managing a balance of power with various opponents and not with really being out to screw the other guy, which is what, you know, Nixon's view of life and not just international relations was. And and secondly, and I think this does come through very clearly, say, in his memoirs, he was, uh, this was a time when he sees a country that is ripped apart by uh, civil turmoil, by uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, he goes through these very painful breaks with his former colleagues. So I, you know, I've always thought of him as approaching this period through a very pessimistic lens where he's, I wouldn't, I don't think he ever used the terms uh, managing American decline, but, you know, I seems to me that's what he was thinking. So do I have Henry Kissinger all wrong, or or is it, as I think you in part are saying, that, you know, the focus should be on Nixon and Laird, maybe a little bit less on Kissinger? I think that's correct, yeah. Um, a lot of stuff that gets written about the Nixon administration's foreign policy tends to boil down to Kissinger as being the one who's driving the foreign policy. And I do see this story as very much a Nixon story. Kissinger is an important part of it. Laird is an especially important part of it. But on arms control issues, yes, Nixon was making the key decisions and driving a lot of the, of the policy process. Kissinger himself is, is an interesting figure in this time period because he has a number of different layers, I think, to his approach to this. On the one hand, yes, I think he sees the world of the 1970s as being one that's unfavorable for the United States. 
especially with the United States trying to get out of Vietnam uh, and the Soviets approaching and overtaking the United States in the number of strategic nuclear launchers. Um, and so for him, part of this is an attempt, as you say, perhaps to manage decline, at least in the short term, but to sort of head off the Soviets getting too far ahead so that the United States can perhaps recover at some point down the road. Um, on the specifics, so that's at the sort of geostrategic level. At the specific nuclear technical level, though, um, at least in this time period, uh, Kissinger was much more hawkish on nuclear weapons, much more interested in pursuing advantage in nuclear weapons than I think many people have remembered, in part because he sort of glosses over this in his memoirs, but even in his academic writing, you know, his, his, his sort of most famous book that he wrote in the late 1950s on limited nuclear war was an extended treatise on how the United States could gain advantage on the nuclear battlefield in Europe and how with the, the use of nuclear weapons in specific ways could bolster deterrence and potentially defeat the Soviet Union on the battlefield. And in the Nixon administration too, at least behind closed doors, Kissinger is one of the foremost people who is pushing to um, revamp nuclear targeting and develop what back then was called limited strategic nuclear options. It's a policy that becomes associated with James Schlesinger a few years later. But behind the scenes, it's really Kissinger uh, initially who's pushing this, this development of uh, nuclear targeting processes to try to get ahead of the Soviet Union to develop new coercive options. So in that regard, he's a sort of an ambivalent figure, right? On the one hand, he is sort of managing this declining process, but on the other hand, he is intensely interested in nuclear technical competition. And that's where I think he overlaps with Nixon and Laird, especially, that the three of them sort of come together eventually on this idea of how can we use qualitative improvements in targeting, in weapons technology, and sensors to promote long-term American technical advantages. So it turns out that Henry Kissinger is a complicated guy. Yeah. I suspect you'd agree with that, Eric. I mean, who, who would have figured? So let me pull on the thread a little bit um, that Elliot has opened or pulled on here. Let me pull it a little further. The biggest part of the book really is about the incredibly intense interagency negotiations that go on about these various approaches. And the one figure we haven't mentioned, who's really the, one of the uh, keys to this drama, is Gerard Smith, Ambassador Gerard Smith, Jerry Smith, who was dual-hatted both as the head of the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, an independent agency inside the Department of State, as well as the head negotiator for the SALT process. And he really is the chief exponent, I think it's fair to say in your book, of the cooperative approach, that this is all about win-win, both sides should feel good about this, and that they should be trying to cooperate and, and create a stable nuclear balance and uh, get away from the sort of arms race that has uh, been going on for the last decade or so or more. Tell us a little bit about that, how that worked out. I mean, Kissinger is sort of in the middle of that because he has to, as national security advisor, sort of adjudicate all of these disputes. But, but am I wrong to say that, you know, at the end of the day, when you look at the negotiation, the thing that strikes one is how much of it is spent negotiating with ourselves as opposed to negotiating with the Soviets? Very much, yes. You have to remember that Nixon, when he comes into office in 1969, he comes into office against the backdrop of the failure of the Johnson administration, especially in the previous year, to reconcile American foreign policy goals with American domestic political goals. And it just, the, the combination of the Vietnam War, the Soviet approach to nuclear parity, domestic 
you know, turmoil in the United States absolutely destroys Johnson's presidency um, and actually creates a window, an opportunity for Nixon to get into the Oval Office. And so Nixon, from very early on, is intensely focused on this idea that we need to, if we're going to have an arms control process, we need to build the broadest domestic political coalition that we can in support of this. And that's going to require us to appeal to sort of more traditional mainline liberals who will have a more cooperative approach to arms control, try to improve relations with the Soviet Union and limit particularly dangerous technologies, as well as um, uh, more hawkish, competitively oriented constituencies who see the Soviet Union still as a threat um, and who want to head off that threat. And so in that regard, yes, Nixon uh, and, and Kissinger is his sort of deputy in this. Much of the negotiations, the sort of two-level game of the negotiation, um, takes place in Washington. And it's the attempt to reconcile cooperative proponents of arms control like Smith, uh, like Bill Rogers, who's the Secretary of State, with more uh, sort of hawkish, competitively oriented constituencies like um, Melvin Laird, like Nixon's two uh, chairmen of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Earl Wheeler and Admiral Thomas Moore in this period, competitively oriented people. And Nixon's great fear is that if he produces an arms control agreement that only pleases one of these constituencies, then that agreement will not pass congressional scrutiny and will not actually end up being a treaty. And so he is very canny, I think, um, uh, even as he's sort of improvising and moving his way through this process, he's very canny about trying to frame the process in ways that can appeal both to that cooperative constituency and to that competitive constituency. Um, and in that regard, Smith is one of his biggest obstacles. Uh, Gerard Smith, as you said, the, the director of arms control and disarmament, is one of his biggest obstacles because Smith is very cooperatively focused and very much trying to move this process forward on let's get along with the Soviets, let's limit technologies that are sort of mutually disadvantageous. To the extent that Smith alienates competitive arms controllers, like Laird especially, in the administration. On the other hand, Nixon feels that he needs Smith at the end of the day to present this agreement to Congress to say, no, this is a good arms control agreement and you should support and ratify this. And so the attempt to, to work around and through uh, the various parts of the government um, to produce the sort of compromise that Nixon wants at the end in support of his agreement uh, is very acute for him. And of course he needs, I mean, part of the reason is that he needs congressional support, both for funding the Safeguard ABM system, which was an evolution from the system he inherited from Robert McNamara and Lyndon Johnson, uh, but also he needs uh, funding for both the multiple independently uh, retargetable warheads, the MIRVs that allow you to put more than one warhead on a missile on the Minuteman systems rather than singular warhead and then uh, and have greater accuracy, but also the follow-on to the Polaris and Poseidon submarine-launched ballistic missiles in the form of what will become Trident. So he has to have congressional support, and the Democrats control both houses of Congress. Yeah, and this, this is a process that is oftentimes described as a form of log rolling, which is that on the one hand, you have the arms control negotiation process, which is what sort of more liberal, uh, dovish constituents want. On the other hand, you have the defense budgetary and the forced modernization process, which is what more competitively oriented hawkish constituents want. And the trade-off is that the liberals, the sort of dovish people get arms control and the sort of hawkish conservatives get forced modernization. 
And part of the story that I think is important is to see that these were not two disconnected policy processes, at least from Nixon and Kissinger and Laird's point of view, that the purpose of the arms control negotiation was, in fact, to enable and enhance the force modernization process. It was to create the conditions under which that qualitative modernization of U.S. forces would be most effective. Um, and to deny the Soviets certain counter moves in the arms race to continue building up quantitatively in response to that qualitative process. Could I ask you a question about that? Because I, I mean, I'm not, this is now bringing back painful memories of what it was like to be a uh, an undergraduate and a graduate student in the 1970s. You know, the thing that struck me then is the, the orthodoxy was arms control. The orthodoxy was what you call cooperative, the cooperative approach, not necessarily completely daft, uh, although some of it was, you know, there was, you know, you got to be careful and it's very complicated and, and all that. But but there was an overwhelming presumption that arms control was about cooperation so that you avoid cataclysm. And, you know, I don't remember anybody advocating the competitive approach to arms control saying, yeah, this is a great way to screw the Russians. Uh, I mean, that would have been really any, you know, even put a little bit more politely than I just put it, that would have been ruled completely out of court. And so it seems to me that, you know, isn't part of that the part of the story here has to be that they're operating, you know, that the the people, the competitive types, particularly Laird and uh, the president are operating in a intellectually hostile environment and they have to kind of navigate their way through that. Am I pushing the argument too far? No, I don't think so. Uh, and, there's, and there's a couple levels to this. The first is that on the, on the policy side, um, Nixon and Kissinger have to be very careful in how they present this policy publicly, um, in part because of their domestic constituencies, but especially because of the Soviet Union, right? The Soviets are unlikely to sign on to an arms control agreement that Nixon frames publicly as this is an agreement designed to screw over the Soviets. So there has to be some, some public rhetoric, some patina on this process of this is good for both sides. Um, and in that regard, the arms control process is built on this partial fiction of this is somehow a cooperative process. This is what the United States is attempting to do. While behind closed doors, we now have fairly substantial evidence that at, at fairly high levels of the government, um, they were thinking very competitively about this and thinking about how arms control could be an adjunct to a competitive strategy. I'll add, and it goes a little bit beyond the book, um, on the intellectual history side, um, the development of arms control theory is very interesting and intersects, I think, with some of the breakup of the American um, Academy, Security Studies Academy, in response to the Vietnam War. So if you dig back into the... Um, the early or mid-1960s, before Vietnam sort of kicks off, um, you can actually find some interesting people working on arms control topics in a more competitive theoretical vein. Um, Don Brennan at the Hudson Institute wrote a little bit about this once upon a time. Um, Bill Kintner and Bob Falsgraf, who at this point were at UPenn, uh, Foreign Policy Research Institute, had some conference papers. Again, these were never turned into books or peer-reviewed articles, sort of conference paper-level publications. Uh, where they lay out some interesting thoughts about power transition theory, arms control, where it might fit into the rise and fall of powers, how countries might use it to try to restrain the adversary's advantages. So it existed at a sort of working level, working group level theory. 
And then I, my, my take on this is that because of the Vietnam War, because of the breakup of the American defense intellectual establishment in response to that, um, many of those people leave formal academia and go into the rapidly expanding sort of think tank policy sector, right? So FPRI breaks off from UPenn. Uh, Brennan um, ends up losing his affiliations with the Cambridge crowd and, and sort of ends up full time at Hudson. Um, and so there's work on the policy side of let's think about competitive strategies and offsets and how we would structure maybe arms control as an adjunct to that. But in the, in the sort of ivory tower of the academy, those more competitively oriented thoughts on arms control um, disappear very much. And the, and the sort of Schelling-esque framework of arms control as it was in the early 1960s becomes the bedrock of arms control theory that's then built upon by people like Bob Jervis. Uh, and Just to clinch the point, you know, the ivory tower is a lot more important, arguably, than it is now. I mean, I think hmm. it seems to me that it's, you know, during that period, the 70s, 60s, 70s, maybe a little bit the, uh, the 80s, you know, what the academic consensus was, for better or for worse, really did set the tone for public debate. And the think tank stuff, I agree, was out there, but these were considered somewhat marginal voices. That's not the case now. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, uh, first, I don't think there's any academic consensus on just about anything anymore. But I don't think if all the prof professors at the in every Ivy League institution said, uh, you know, American foreign policy should be X, it would make one whit of difference. You mentioned uh, Donald Brennan, who is, as you rightfully point out, one of the early architects or intellectual architects of arms control. He's part of that special issue of Daedalus, the Annals of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is then published as a book about arms control. He writes a lot about missile defense. And as you point out in the book, I think he writes the, the most excoriating critique of the uh, ABM uh, treaty and the SALT agreement to limit offensive nuclear arms uh, during the post-negotiation debate about ratification, which I think appeared in National Review, if, if memory serves. So there is a kind of fragmentation even among the, you know, sort of arms control theorists early, early on in this period. It then, I do think, hardens into the sort of orthodoxy that that Elliot talks about in which, and, and John, you know, I've been party to some conversations about this, where arms control is regarded as a good in and of itself, which I do think is a danger. Um, you know, and you see this way, you know, you see this in the Reagan years articulated as a critique of Reagan's first term. His first term, no arms control agreement was signed, uh, which implies, of course, that any arms control agreement that he signed would have been better than no arms control agreement even though arms controllers frequently say no agreement's better than a bad agreement. But, but the reality is there is this, as Elliot was saying earlier, I think a kind of built-in presumption that in any given situation, arms control is probably the right approach to, to deal with the problem. Just one thought on that, uh, Eric. You know, I, I think some of our younger listeners may not be aware that there was a separate arms control and disarmament agency. Uh, created, I believe, in 1961, so that it's kind of apart from the State Department. It's apart from the Defense Department's only job is to basically to advocate for arms control, which in retrospect is crazy. And in retrospect, I think also does represent the institutionalization of the cooperative view of arms control, which is why it was a good thing when it was finally 
blown up. I was part of that, so I'll take credit for that, at least partially. I, look, mate, to you know, not to put too fine a point on it, this is actually a theme in your book, John, right? Which is that Jerry Smith's role, both as the director of ACTA, the Arms Control Disarmament Agency, and as the chief negotiator, put him fundamentally into uh, a position of conflict of interest. Because on the one hand, he was the institutional spokesperson you know, for arms control as, you know, a a good in and of itself. But then he was also responsible for the specific negotiation of the ABM treaty and the offensive arms limitation agreement. Um, And this becomes a a huge problem, which you describe in, in great detail, for Nixon and Kissinger to manage, because you've got you know, the sort of arms controller, cooperative arms controllers on one side, but you've got Laird, who also is trying to man, you know, manage, as we were just saying a minute ago, the congressional dimension of this. By the way, we ought to tell listeners who may not be aware that Mel Laird was in some sense one of the probably best prepared people to ever become Secretary of Defense because he had been the ranking Republican uh, member uh, in the House Armed Services Committee for almost 20 years when he becomes Secretary of Defense. So he knows where a lot of the bodies are buried, and he's acutely sensitive to the changing congressional politics of this and what it requires to get his defense budget. And he's not shy in terms of uh, you know bureaucratic warfare of going around Nixon and Kissinger to get what he wants from the Congress. But the upshot of this is, and this is a point I wanted to, to get to, is Nixon and Kissinger end up, and you do a terrific job of kind of disentangling this, negotiating, as it were, against their own negotiator. I mean, they at some point lose confidence in Smith's ability to get the agreement that they want and which they think they need to keep Laird on side. But Nixon is also desperate to get the damn thing done in time for the 1972 election because he wants to have an agreement to run on, you know, as a peacemaker. Uh, And so he puts Kissinger in charge of a so-called back channel. It's not really a back channel because uh, it's a formal government channel, but it's a but it's a parallel channel to the negotiations that are going on in Helsinki and Vienna that are being led by Smith. And it's kept totally secret from Smith and at least most of the rest of the U.S. SALT delegation. So tell us a little bit about that. And what and what's your judgment about this, the good and bad and the ugly? I mean, in your account, you pretty much seem to think, well, this is not a great way to do business, but it was probably the only way they could have gotten the deal. Is that a fair reading of your judgment? I think so. Um, it's interesting to read back through the memoirs and through the documents um, and and try to reassemble some of the elements of the structural positions, as you say, in the bureaucracy, the struggles for someone like Jerry Smith to try to be both the director of ACTA and the chief negotiator. Um, It's very difficult, right? Because on the one hand, as the chief negotiator, he's supposed to impartially represent the interests of the entire U.S. government. As the director of ACTA, he's supposed to represent his own agency's views on the subject. And he really, really struggled um, to fit those those two roles together. The personalities also end up mattering a lot, too, I think. Um, Jerry Smith, very, very smart guy very knowledgeable on these issues. Again, going all the way back to working on the Atomic Energy Commission and the Eisenhower administration, deeply engaged in nuclear technology arms control issues. Um, Very privileged background. Um, Long time in D.C. working in the government. 
in many ways then the antithesis of Nixon at a personal level, someone who saw himself as an outsider, as someone who sort of built himself up from, from his own modest beginnings, um, someone who had a bigger picture view rather than a sort of narrowly technical one, again, channeling Nixon's view of himself here, right? Um, so in that regard to a significant personality clash between those two, and yes, Nixon does end up losing faith in Smith's ability to manage this process. They end up going to this back channel. Um, Kissinger negotiates uh, directly with Soviet ambassador of the United States, Anatoly Dobrynin, for many months. Um, and some of the key concessions that the, the United States and the Soviets, for that matter, make during this negotiating process occur in that private Kissinger-Dobrynin channel, which is largely kept secret from the rest of the government, including Smith and Wright. And on the one hand, that is a totally crazy way to run a negotiation, <laughs> right? To have a front channel where you're putting something out there and then a sort of a secret channel in the back where you're putting different things out. Um, it created tremendous animosity inside the government. And that comes across when you read these memoir accounts by Smith, by Kissinger especially, uh, by Raymond Garthoff, who was uh, at the State Department at that time working on Smith's staff, wrote one of the big accounts um, of this. Tremendous scar tissue in those accounts over how personal these disputes got, over how difficult it was to work with these multiple channels where Nixon was keeping everything tightly in his own hands and divvying out information a little bit here, a little bit there to try to manage the process. I mean, Smith For titles Nixon, his uh, memoir Double Talk. And uh, he does. And the whole theme of it is essentially Kissinger's duplicity in you know doing all this stuff behind his back. He does. And, and the footnotes in the chapter in Raymond Gartoff's Detente and Confrontation, his chapter on Salt One, when you get into some of the footnotes that he writes about these minutely detailed differences over, well, Kissinger in his memoir said that, that I said, that Smith said this, but he didn't say that. He said this, you know, just the amount of like, I got to set the record straight. Really, really intense personal clashes. And the back channel process um, that Nixon pursues aggravates that significantly, right? The big advantage of the back channel process is that Nixon is able to formulate compromise positions with the Soviet Union in the back, in the secret channel, in the back channel that Kissinger is running. He is then able to present those positions to his own government as a fait accompli, to say, here is the agreement such as it is. And for that fait accompli, there is no negotiating record that people can then point to. And what that allows Nixon to do is that, and you can see this in the, in the minutes of the briefings that Nixon and Kissinger give to separately to Smith and to Laird when they come back in May 1971, for example, with one of these big back channel um, concessions. When they talk to Smith, they justify that concession on the basis of a cooperative logic. And when they talk to Laird, they justify that concession on the basis of a competitive logic. And because the agreement is sort of, sort of lands de novo with no negotiating record as a fait accompli, Nixon then has maximum leeway to explain it and justify it however he wants. Because you can't go back to the negotiating record and say, well, Smith said to Semenov, who's the Soviet uh, head of the Soviet delegation, Vladimir Semenov, Smith said to Semenov on this date that the compromise was for this purpose. Because that record doesn't exist for the back channel. So that's why at the end of the day, I sort of come down, even though it's in some ways a totally crazy way to run a negotiation. I come down, I think, 
on balance on the side of this as a useful tool for Nixon in the tremendously fractured political environment he was in, trying to manage this team of rivals with radically different views in his own government, trying to push through an arms control agreement, both in time for the election, but also to head off as soon as he could the buildup of Soviet strategic forces. That on balance, the back channel ends up being a useful tool because it allows him to sort of massage his messaging of what this is about and create enough ambiguity that the agreement can actually appeal in some ways to both sides of this divide. Wasn't it also a question of personal style? I mean, I think my impression has always been Nixon and Kissinger always mistrusted the bureaucracy, any bureaucracy. They always liked having a maximum freedom of maneuver, which back channels allow you. They always preferred secrecy. I think they always got a little kind of thrill, you know, from black limousines carrying into Andrews Air Force Base in the middle of the night so nobody can see you and that, that kind of thing. You know, I, I, there are some rather cruel remarks that have been made to Kissinger's expense by people who worked for him to the effect that he just preferred this way of acting. But I think more importantly, I think Nixon Nixon did as well. The you know part of the the story that really strikes me about this, and which you know which you really do put together wonderfully well, is that you know when when Kissinger tries his sneakiest tricks, he always runs into Mel Laird. And actually, in, in his memoirs, he he pays him uh, you know a sort of backhanded compliment, saying you know that every time I thought I had Laird trapped, he'd find some other way of getting at him. And and the thing is. And, and if I could just kind of riff on that for a moment, the, the book is about arms control. But, you know, in the larger context of trying to rebuild the American military after Vietnam, when, you know, it's the services are just torn apart by racial conflict, drug use, the, the transition to uh, eventual transition to an all volunteer force. Laird manages that really exceptionally well. And it's an argument, I think, for why you want somebody who is both a kind of a master of the, the substantive issues, because Eric, as you pointed out, you know, he'd been chairman of the House Armed, he'd been the ranking Republican member of the House Armed Services Committee for almost two decades, but also somebody with, a, you know, acute political skills. If I'm not mistaken, one of those began, and then I'll, I'll shut up. When Nixon tried to get him to become Secretary of Defense, he got him to promise that he could make appoint all of his own uh, immediate subordinates which, as we know, doesn't usually happen. I mean, there's some sort of haggling that goes on. And I believe that he got Nixon, he wrote this down on a napkin, and I think he got Nixon to sign it, and he held on to that napkin, you know, so that he had the evidence. Am I screwing up that story somehow, Eric? I can't remember if it was on a napkin, but th there's no question that Laird was, as you say, you know, determined to, you know, be master in his own house, which, by the way, is in stark contrast to at least one of his successors, uh, Jim Schlesinger, who had, uh, you know, former Governor Bill Clements as his deputy at defense. And the two, you know, and literally they couldn't get along. This was like within a couple of years of Laird. And they were, you know, at each other's throats constantly. And people in the department, of course, realized that you could venue shop. You know, if you didn't like the answer you thought you were going to get from Jim Schlesinger, you could wait till he was out of town you know, and, and go to Bill Clements and vice versa. And so Laird does really stand out, I, I think. I mean, the other thing is that he he is an incredible proponent of uh, not just, you know, moving to an all-volunteer force, but getting the U.S. out of uh, Vietnam. And, 
you know, Nixon and Kissinger want to hold up the withdrawals at several points, and then Laird won't have any of it. He's a constant force of pressure, you know, making them, you know, withdraw to get U.S. troops the hell out of Vietnam. And so very interesting figure. I mean, in my book, one of the greatest sectafs ever, and he deserves, I think, a lot of credit. And I think he comes off very well in the book. You know, you depict him as a, you know, very, very hawkish, which is certainly true, but someone who was really motivated by trying to put the nation's defenses, you know, on the uh, best path possible, realistic deterrence, as as he called it, as you note in the book, and on which others then would build, including Harold Brown, as you point out, in the Carter administration as Secretary of Defense, who was part of the SALT delegation, a technical advisor to to the SALT delegation, and understands the importance of a lot of these technologies that, as you point out, Laird is banking on. I mean, that does become the the so-called second offset uh, strategy under Brown and Bill Perry, his director of defense research and engineering in the Carter administration. It's the emphasis on both precision munitions and stealth, you know, both for nuclear purposes and for conventional purposes. Laird was one of the big surprises on this project. Because um, again, what I had re- what I had read in my sort of read up to this project, um, in um, he does get a name drop in in Kissinger's memoirs that is an especially formidable opponent. But um, in John Newhouse's sort of journalistic account of this, in Ray Gartoff's account of this, and Jerry Smith's account of this, Laird is not a sort of central figure in the arms control deliberations in those sort of traditional accounts. And so when I really started digging into this. It was a it was a surprise to me that he showed up as much as he did in Nixon and Kissinger's considerations of this, and that he was so sort of forward in the development of not just the defense strategy, the sort as he, as you say the realistic deterrence, uh, which is the sort of predecessor to the offset strategy, um, but also was so forward in the development of the arms control policy specifically, the idea that an adjunct of realistic deterrence of qualitative superiority can be an arms control negotiation that is designed to shift and push competition in directions favorable to American military technical advantages. And that's a major theme I wanted to bring out of this book. Nixon and Kissinger, uh, you know, they're on the title, but but Laird was in some ways the biggest surprise um, in this book. And really just try to highlight his contribution to that, I think, uh, is, is critical. Maybe it's a measure of his cunning and effectiveness that actually the role he plays is not entirely visible. I think I sometimes think that some of the most effective players in Washington are those who have uh, been quite happy to be more behind the scenes and doing what they do without uh, calling undue attention to themselves. You're smiling, Eric. You know, um, I think it was Judge Rosenman who said that the, you know, the essential quality of a staffer is a passion for anonymity. You know, if you really, if you really want to be effective, yeah. you know, getting a lot of uh, ink in the Washington Post, New York Times is not always the best way to go about it, in my experience. I, you know, I, I want to. We've got about ten, twelve minutes left. I want to talk a little bit about how the SALT and ABM treaty agreements were sold to the Congress because it's got, uh, you know, I think lots of relevance for contemporary discussions, whether it's about the uh, potential for the United States to get back into the joint comprehensive plan of uh, action with Iran, which I think is, as you note in the book, probably 
the chances of that are negligible and maybe not a bad thing in my view, but also New Start, which was extended by uh, the Biden administration in its first week in office until 2026. It'll, I mean, it's running up already in terms of the time of expiration, and so we'll have to make decisions. This administration and the subsequent one, or second Biden term, will have to make kind of uh, decisions about that. The way this agreement is sold, as you point out, it's it's sort of uh, there's a kind of bi, uh, bifurcated approach to the Congress. So on the one hand, there's this, you know, this is a great arms control agreement. Look how wonderful it is that, you know, uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union are cooperating together to limit arms. As Secretary Rogers says when he testifies, this is going to put a uh, break, fire break in the arms race. So a lot of emphasis on these agreements are good because they'll promote arms race stability. You know, if you're worried about an arms race and the sort of flip side of the coin is, well, then arms control must be the solution if you're worried about an arms race. I think one could make the argument that the agreement that you describe about um, accidental nuclear war, which is reached as part of these agreements, is actually more important because it's part of the communications channels that help you uh, have what people call crisis stability, the ability to manage a crisis and I would, you know, my obiterdicta on, you know, the 50-year record of arms control is arms control has got a lot more to say for itself on the area of crisis stability than it does in arms race stability. I mean, in the case at hand, the one you describe, it doesn't really uh, cap the arms race. And if anything, it just channels it into new technologies, as we've discussed. So, um, you know, what does that tell us, uh, you know, arms race stability, crisis stability about this whole notion of an action-reaction model for strategic competition in, uh, in nuclear weapons? Is that an accurate description of it? And then one final point I'd love to get you to comment on, and then Elliot can chime in as well, but you do make an argument, which I don't think I agree with, John, at the end of the book, which is that these agreements you know, ought to be conducted in a way you say competitively to put us in the best possible uh, competitive situation with which I agree. But you also say we should try and, you know, the experience with the Soviets shows that even when we have political differences on a whole range of other issues, whether it's human rights or regional behavior, we can continue to have these, you know, arms control negotiations because they put us in a better competitive political advantage. My question to you is, is that really possible? I mean, because one of the things arguably that happens here is that in selling this as a cooperative agreement, Nixon and Kissinger lean on the sort of the basic principles of agreement that are supposed to govern U.S.-Soviet behavior more broadly in the world. And then the Soviets go on a tear after that through uh, South Africa, in Southeast Asia, in Afghanistan, and other parts of the world that create an impossible political environment, really, one in which Jimmy Carter, for instance, can't get the follow-on agreement negotiated. I make the same argument about Iran, right? I mean, possible to negotiate on, uh, you know, uh, nuclear weapons with Iran while they're busy su- supplying Russia with with UAVs and while they're, you know, uh, repressing their own population, hanging, uh, you know, young men who dare to, you know, speak out for women's right not to wear the hijab. I mean, I don't think that's politically possible. If I could just follow, follow on since I know we're running out of time, so I'll just... 
pile on with this and then we'll really let you give, give you a chance to respond. I completely agree with you, Eric, but I would go, as is, as is often the case, I completely agree with you, but I would go even further. And the way I would go even further would be to say that it is always a mistake or almost always a mistake to propose a policy on the basis of a phony justification. Say, well, my real reason for doing this is that I've got something very sneaky in mind. I can't say that publicly, so uh, I'm going to have a phony justification in public because the phony justification ends up boxing you in. It misleads stuff. You run into what Albert, the late, great Albert Wallstegger used to say, the, the danger of fooling ourselves, and that, the, there's that. Now, I also believe, by the way, that you know, arms control will, th- this sort of arms control agreement will look like an artifact of a particular period in time when you had a limited number of things that you could count. And, you know, it was sort of within the technical range of what you want to do. I am not at all convinced that, you know, anything comparable with the Chinese, for example, would be possible. Okay. End of my rant. Now, John. This is why, I, John, this is why I love doing this show with Elliot because he makes me look so moderate. <laughs> So a um, couple a couple things in there. First, I'll go back to the idea of the action-reaction cycle and sort of uh, arms control as a, a prop for crisis versus arms race stability. And I'll say um, I agree 100%, Eric. Um, the action-reaction model of arms racing, I think, gives very little traction to try to actually understand what was going on in the dynamic between the superpowers in the Cold War. And I think that that my, my work on arms control in the Nixon administration is a small part, could be a small part of the case against that, which is just to say that, yes, in the main, these agreements were not intended by Nixon to curtail arms racing. They weren't. They were intended to shape future iterations of arms racing. And perhaps that future shape of arms racing would be stabilizing or destabilizing. Nixon and Kissinger and Laird tended to be of the thought that the most stable configuration of strategic forces was the one in which the United States enjoyed significant advantages over the Soviet Union. Because they saw the United States as primarily a status quo power, the Soviet Union as one trying to revise the international system. So that's obviously a very different um, definition of strategic stability than would emerge from the works of, of, of Schelling and, and Jervis and, and many, of the, many of the theorists on this. But on a practical issue for them, yes, Arms race stability, crisis stability is predicated on American advantage, and therefore that is what arms control agreements should seek in this competitive framework. To your point, too, that doesn't necessarily deny that there might be certain issues like the prevention of accidental launch of missiles where we could genuinely cooperate with the Soviets. So you you can do both, actually, um, at the end of the day. And that, I think, then plays into um, the broader question of would this be possible in the future? Because in the book, and in the very title of the book, Competitive Arms Control, I lean very heavily on this competitive idea, in part because I think it's relatively novel compared to what has been written about this period in the past, and in part because I think it's rather clever and maybe something that we should be thinking about as a, as a guide for future policy. That said, um, I don't think the idea that the arms control process in this period advanced both cooperative and competitive goals was entirely an artifice. Nixon's interest in it was primarily competitive, but when Nixon and Kissinger sold the agreements as potentially advancing both of those logics at the same time, I don't know that they were entirely incorrect. Now, they didn't 
manage to entirely reconcile those two logics. And as you guys have noted, as the 70s go on and Soviet uh, sort of revisionist behavior intensifies, you get to the Carter administration, it's much harder to sort of reconcile the cooperative and competitive elements of this arms control approach. And the result is the breakdown of the, of the negotiations in SALT II. Um, the other element, and again, it goes beyond the scope of the book, but the other element that's important in the breakdown of the arms control process and the lead up to the failure of SALT II is the failure of the United States to follow through on Nixon and Laird's plan for a strategy of realistic deterrence. Because as you mentioned earlier, Eric, part of that strategy was the idea that in this five-year window where we'll have the interim agreement, we'll continue to negotiate an arms control agreement with the Soviets for the next five, four or five years. If at the end of that four or five-year period, we don't have a satisfactory agreement, we will be in a position to deploy Trident, to deploy MX, which becomes Peacekeeper, to deploy Alcom on bombers. We'll have all of the qualitative tools ready for that leap ahead. And not only will that put us in the best security position, but the pursuit, the aggressive pursuit of those qualitative improvements will give us the most bargaining leverage with the Soviets. So it's in fact, theoretically, a virtuous cycle of improve forces, negotiate from a position of strength, shape the adversary in ways that are beneficial to you that feeds back into your force improvement. And in the 1970s, both of those processes broke down. The arms control talks run into trouble because of Watergate, bureaucratic issues in the United States, increasing Soviet revisionism. Um, but the force modernization falls behind too. Trident One isn't ready until the late 1970s. Peacekeeper isn't put in the ground until the late 1980s. So to the extent that such a policy would be feasible today, um, it's very difficult to actively determine, yes, our adversaries will somehow cooperate with us to their disadvantage. But to the extent that we should be thinking about the future direction of arms control, the things that we should probably be doing today are the things that we should probably be doing even if we weren't going to have arms control agreements, which is modernize our forces, ensure that we're competing aggressively in the military technical realm, making sure that we have the capabilities that we need to defend ourselves, our allies, to deter adversary aggression. That process will set us up both for the opportunity to negotiate in the future from a position of strength, or if negotiations don't happen, to defend ourselves, defend our allies, deter our adversaries. So I think that's where to begin at this point. If we're looking at a world in which the previous 50 years of arms control has mostly passed away, and the future is a question of how would we rebuild things from the ground up. I think there's value in going back to these early days when they were building things from the ground up, both to see maybe draw some inspiration on what might work, but also, as you say, maybe to look for some warnings about what we should avoid. Well, that's a great note, I think, to end on, John. I want to thank you for joining us today. Our guest has been John Marrer, whose book Competitive Arms Control was published last year by Yale University Press. It's definitely worth a read if you're interested in arms control. Uh, and even if you're not, it's uh, actually a great study in bureaucratic politics. And I'm glad we got a chance to talk about Mel Laird. So that's it for this edition of Shield of the Republic. Uh, we'll be back next week. But I want to thank uh, my partner, Elliot Cohen, and John for a great discussion today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Elliot. Appreciate the opportunity to share my work. <laughs>